advertise these hot topics. I've told people we won't be singing and you won't be asked to pray, um, which will be disappointing for some of you. But the reason is, um, some of our meetings in church need to be sort of entry-level meetings to invite people to who might be scared to come to a full-on meeting. So these first Sundays of the month topics, it's just going to be me giving... Um, like this paper and the idea is you bring your friends along and we pray that it will be their entry into full on spirit filled life with Jesus and his church okay so without further to do you are the brave ones that have come to a talk on addiction to pornography Um, I would like you first and foremost to find a bible and turn to Psalm 119, which is page 618 in the Pew Bibles. Um, I won't read it yet, but just have one near you. So this is a pretty hefty one. We start as we mean to go on. These are going to be big ones, these hot topics. So Psalm 119. Okay, Parkin, you can put the Bible, um, well, just hold on to it for now. How can Jesus and church help with internet pornography? What's the answer to that? Can Jesus and church help with internet pornography? Or addiction to lust, lust uh, of any form? I believe this. A church that sweeps addictions under the rug and pretends like they don't exist among Christians in church even, or if we sweep tests from God or failings or illnesses or shame under the rug, I think then as a church we become a sham, like not real fellowship. Because church is experiencing Jesus in the chaos of life. And Jesus sends us church as a means to rescue us and others. So we're going full on now, Um, in the nitty-gritty subjects of life. So here's point number one that I'm dividing this talk into. This is the storm that swept through our society, our modern culture. So let's look into this. I don't know if you know this, but in the New Testament, the average age to get married for a man was between 15 and 17. Uh, Yeah. And um, the average age for a woman to get married in New Testament times was just after puberty, 14, 15. What's interesting now is, so marriage was basically a given for teenagers. What's happening now is, I don't know if you know this, but the average age for marriage in the West is 26 years old and getting higher again. It dropped for a while, but now it's quite, it's probably more like 28 now from when I read the book they said 26. What does that mean? It means we have a cultural context which is particularly susceptible for sexual temptation. And we're also in a climate where marriage is dropping. So you've got people surrounded by sexual adverts, music videos, dramas on TV... They're not getting married. Um, So you have almost this seething sort of cauldron, which is resulting in a highly sexualized culture. 
and climate. Also really interesting, a highly sensitive one as well. Have you noticed that? Those two things are sort of colliding. Basically, by the way, what passes as hardcore pornography, what passed as hardcore pornography in the 60s, the swinging 60s, is basically what's on TV about 7 o'clock in 2020. It's The music videos would cause the swinging 60s to sort of blush with embarrassment and worry about the young people. So um, there's massive pressure on our loved ones. There are lots of grandparents in the room and in Park End Church. Massive pressure on younger people and church needs to respond in the correct way, which is why we're here tonight. To be fed from the Lord and guided by the Lord on this battle of a generation, this battle. So here are some sobering statistics for people in church and outside of church. And you know them because I've been rattling them off for the last month at you. But every second in the West, particularly in America, $3,000 are spent on pornography. Every second, 30,000 people are watching porn, switching on a new thing, every second. Every second, 372 people are typing in adult search terms on their computers. In China, a couple of years ago, $30 billion was spent on producing content for this genre. Now, people get angry, don't they? Why is God letting people get hungry in the world? God's like in, his book, in this book. Yeah, no, give your money to other people. Help people. Well, if, tw- if $30 billion was pulled from that, it could feed 62% of the world's hungry for an entire year. Andy's ministry with the homeless would be sorted for, a, well, forever, wouldn't it? Literally, $30 billion for all the homeless people in Cardiff. They'd be living in castles for the rest of their lives, wouldn't they? Flying around Cardiff in a jet or something. The average age for the first internet porn exposure is 11 years old. 11. I've got a four-year-old and a six-year-old. That's four years away. No, it's not. That's five years away um, for my eldest. 68 million daily porn search engine requests are made. 42% of people who have the internet watch pornography. And in a book I read this week, a third of most church congregations are watching internet pornography. This is at our door. It's in our lives. It's in the streets of Cardiff. And there has to be an answer. We have to be equipped In the BBC last year, I've got an article that I saved. It's now normal, and they use the word normal, among teenagers to send nude or explicit images of themselves across social media on their mobile phones. Normal for teenagers to be sending naked pictures of themselves back and forth. Gone are the days where you had to take a shameful walk to the top shelf of the newsagent to get this stuff, and, every, and you hope no one's looking. This is basically hardcore drugs being pumped into the veins directly, and it's all on the mobile phones in their pockets or at their computers at home. 
So that's the storm that's sweeping around the culture of 2020. All right? Here's point number two. This is the impact of the storm. Now, um, I don't know if you saw, but Britain's oldest man was on the news this week. 112, was he? Something like that. He will have seen a lot of change in this area. The impact of this storm in society. There's a verse in the Bible. I want to share it with you. Numbers 32. Don't need to look it up. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. It's a scary one now, isn't it? Behold, your sins will find you out. What struck me as I've studied the Bible more in the Bible, and as you look around, sometimes that finding out where God finds people out, it's not always you get caught in the act of sin. Sometimes in the Bible you find people or society get caught out in sin by God just leaving them to their own devices, leaving them to it, where they slowly perish, decay, and malnourish instead of flourishing in the image of the living God. He just leaves them. No breaks on society. And if you look around, sex and lust, they're quite prevalent now for young people and beyond in the media, in adverts, music videos. It's quite explicit. But what is going hand in hand with that is surveys showing people are more miserable than ever and compared to the generation before, anxiety and depression are skyrocketing hand in hand with this other trend of an se overly sexualized culture, sexualized too young. It can be argued that pornography kills the personhood of people. In other words, people get conditioned to pursue a feeling, a buzz, a high, rather than the affections and dignified relationships that we're made to have with one another, family units, church life, in the image of our Trinitarian God who's in fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit. We, instead of reflecting that, cheapen it and become buzz hunters. So it sort of can destroy the personality, the personhood of us. And so you find this, and you'll find it more if this trend continues, and unless the spirit-filled gospel penetrates society and rescues them from this, you'll find that conversations in pubs, schools, social circles, governments will turn very quickly to sex. And you're finding that more and more. Especially after a few drinks. Have you noticed how much the smut comes out? Smutty jokes, smutty content. Uh, content as It's as if people forget that higher pleasures even exist above nudity and sex. And the church cannot head in that direction any longer. And my prayer is that Park End Church becomes anointed as a bastion of hope for people who struggle with this. And we actually 
by the power of God, put the brakes on. A Christian friend of mine was about to face an operation. And the nurse, this is a true story, said, Oh, think of something nice, love, to take your mind off it. Maybe sitting on a beach looking at a pretty woman or something. And he said, I'm a Christian, my dear. I can think of better things than that. The thing is, if this goes unchecked, and a third of church grows to two-thirds, three-thirds, and we get addicted, maybe we stop being able to comprehend anything larger and higher than that. And when church stops knowing God and settles for this other lie, idolatry of like smut, who then is sent to Cardiff to rescue Cardiff? Well, if the church goes out the window, the whole society goes down the swanee. Left to our own devices, behold, your sins will find you out. I've always been frightened since a young boy of this passage. And this passage is from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Have you read it? Yep, good. So here is the story of the man in the iron cage. I'll just reread it. So he was taken by the hand and led to a very dark room where there sat a man in an iron cage. Now the man to look on seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. I am what I was not once, he said. What wast thou once? Christian asked. I was once a fair and flourishing professor, both in my own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I was once, as I thought, fair for the celestial city, and had even joy of the thoughts that I should go thither. Well, but what art thou now? Christian asked. I am a man of despair. I am shut up in it, as in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. How camest thou into this position? Christian asked. I left off being watchful and sober, and I laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit, and he is gone. I am tempted by the devil, and he has come to me. I, am provoked. I have provoked God to anger, and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. For what did you bring yourself into this condition, Christian asked? For the lusts, pleasures, and profits of the world, in the enjoyment of which I did, it did then promise myself much delight. But now every one of those things also bite me and gnaw at me like a burning worm. Isn't that petrifying? So make no mistake, this one is a killer. We're going to handle lots of addictions through this series, alcohol, spending, all that stuff. But this one is a killer. I think you could argue, in some cases, this is worse than committing adultery to your loved one, because adulterers often get caught, and they're sort of shamed into repentance and change, and the marriage flies again. 
This has long-term, undetected, numbing effects in the life of a marriage and parenthood. And so, where I was last a pastor at, in that society, so many children did not even know who their father was. The father just came along, sired some children, and left highly sexualized males. Children watching their families severed because of an unfaithful sexually charged partner. Now, this doesn't just happen. That sort of eyes wandering starts in the quiet little rooms of unchecked um, lusting. And one lady I was friends with linked to the church, when she found out her 14-year-old girl was sleeping around, her answer to the solution was to put her on the pill. Now, that is a disastrous remedy from a, from a climate which is disconnected from the living God. We can do better than put 14-year-old girls on the pill. So that is uh, the climate, uh, the storm, and some of the results of this. And by the way, this isn't a male problem. And in 10 years, if it carries on in the same trend, there'll be more women addicted to internet pornography than men. Now that comes as a surprise to many people. Point three. Now this one is remarkable. How does porn addiction make us miserable? Because it does. You don't find a porn addict bragging that he's a porn addict. Even if like the lads go out on a Friday, they might talk about who they've slept with as a badge of honor. That happens. No one goes around celebrating that they are addicted to internet pornography. It has a particular branding of shame. So how, though, does it make people miserable? Because it does. How is it destructive? All right, listen to this. There are two answers to this, and they're basically both from Jesus. The Lord has designed humans in such a way that we'll be miserable on two major counts if we get into this stuff. Number one, biologically and scientifically we get miserable. I'll get pack that in a minute. And second one is spiritually we get miserable. Although, I don't like it when we drive a wedge between spirit and body, but I'll explain what I mean now. So, biologically, this is fascinating. And I've spent hours reading science papers, and I'm going to condense it so you don't all fall asleep. This pit serves a purpose because you might agree that porn is bad, but you, you don't know why. And what I want is as a church to hate it. Not just say, oh yeah, that's bad, but then we carry on. That we hate it and we see why it's destructive. And when we see the billboards and the music videos and overly explicit things on Netflix or Amazon Prime, we turn it off, not because daddy told me to, but because we hate it. We do. So biologically, right, this is how it's destructive. I've been reading papers, science papers, up to as late as February 2020. So I'm up to date, people, from Dr. Volko and Koob on brain addiction. All right. It's all to, <laughs> thanks, it's all to do with neurological pathways. All right? You get miserable because of neurological pathways or reward pathways in your brain. 
So, in its most basic form, you know this stuff, I'm sure, because you went to Cardiff High, but dopamine is a chemical in your brain. Dopamine. And dopamine gets released, and what it does is it drives us to seek and search rewards. Okay? And when you attain that reward, your brain releases... There's some doctors here. Come and just shout at me if this is way off. Sen, I'm thinking of you at the back now. So, um, but when the reward is attained, your brain releases opioids, which is a pleasure. They're basically, there are substances that bind to our opioid receptors in the brain. And when that happens, we have pain-relieving effects, anxiety reduction, sedation, general pleasantries. So dopamine serves to remind us of things that are most pleasurable in our lives. Dopamine works to further our survival. Because guess what? Our body knows it as well as our mind. Pain, bad. Pleasure, good. Okay? So food, reproduction, safety, security. You think about that stuff and how to get it. Dopamine kicks in. I need that to survive. It's basic, um, like, Jesus mechanics. Okay? Sleep. Sleep is a massive one. Oh, I wish Owen would stop talking. I just want to go to bed. I will survive the night um, if I just sleep. Right, dopamine. Now, addiction is this. When repeated exposure to something pleasurable happens, the sense of anticipation increases and the dopamine hit increases but it can become disordered. And then you've got addiction. And addiction is when you have a satiation. No, when you're desperate for satiation. When you're driven to attain the pleasure and it's distressful and it has significant impairment on your personal, family, social educational, occupational, or any other areas that you function in. Now, this is from Memoirs of an Addicted Brain from 2011. With porn addiction, this addiction causes a disordered reward learning process, and brain pathways form in the neurology and leave a line of footprints in the neural flesh which harden over time. And when addiction to porn happens, your brain rewires itself to believe it needs it to survive. Isn't that incredible? You reteach your existence what it needs to exist. Um, So... Every dose of dopamine is then interpreted by the brain as an act that's promoting your own survival, even if it's not the case. Now that affects what? Your mood, your perception, your decision-making powers. They charged some mice up with dopamine in one of the studies I read and trained it to go after this thing, this pleasurable thing. And what it did then is it rewired its brain at the expense of having food. So when they put food in it, in their vicinity, it gave up on food, don't want that anymore to survive. It went for this superficial, trivial thing, which was killing it. 
The thing is, though, this is an illegitimate purpose for human existence. It's false. It's a trick. It is a malnourished, criminal, criminally sinfully malnourished version on what the living God wants people to be. That's why it's always done with closed doors. That's why nobody brings it up about how did you spend your day today around the dinner table with Gran and Gramps. You don't talk about it. We are designed by the living God to be in church life with flourishing relationships, dignified, sanctified, full of honor and care, be in front of the living God with an open conscience. That's also why, by the way, pornography addicts, they don't finish watching videos. After about halfway through one, they open another one and another one and another one. And the average porn viewer in a session will have seven or ten different videos up and running. Do you know why that is? Because the more and more you fall into this, the more it's difficult to become satiated, so you need an X fix. Quick, quick hit. It's called the novelty value in this area of neuroscience, this extra hit. And what happens then is, Park End, our loved ones and their motivation to attain things they actually need to survive drops. So, everywhere the statistics show this. Porn users report this. Sexual problems increase in the marriage. Brain fog and concentration problems increase. Lethargy and lack of motivation increase. Social anxiety and emotional numbness increase. Declining interest in your actual partner. And the desire increases, but the satiation and the ability to be satisfied drops. Now, non-Christians are clocking onto this. There, there's this forum on the internet. There's tons of them starting, and some celebrities are in them because they're clocking onto this. One of them has 500,000 people on. They're not Christians, and they're just saying no to pornography. And they're spurring each other on, and they're marking how many days they've gone without falling to this trap. Literally, one has 500,000 people in, and it's got one or two celebrities in, encouraging each other. But for church members, there's another kick. Because with church members, because they've met God, and they know God... It's even more difficult for them because they find their personal holiness and fellowship with the living God diminishes. They have loss of joy. They have spiritual depression. They have guilt and shame on a daily basis. And it's got this corrosive effect. They have this blunting of usefulness in service of church life. That's what people find. And all the science shows this. All of the above conditions and symptoms are significantly removed when people stop watching pornography. Now, with all of that in mind, imagine an 11-year-old watching porn every day through his growth of adolescence. Imagine what his brain will be like by mid-20s. Now, this is a battle at our door. Basically, science is finally catching up to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus just says, don't look, don't even look at that stuff. And people are like, well, Jesus, can't you give like an hour paper on hot topics? And he's just like, no, just don't look. I know what happens 
when you get more and more involved in this stuff. I don't need it. I just follow me and look. But people are so disobedient. We have to do papers on it, don't we? But he literally said, just stop it. Stop looking. That's where all the battle is, looking. So that's the one thing why we get miserable. Jesus has wired us our biology to preach at us. But here's another one. The living God has vowed to his church that his church will be miserable if they start getting involved with this stuff when it becomes an idol. Listen to this now. This is Psalm 95. I tell you what, if you want to, just flick back to Psalm 95. It'll give me a little chance to have a drink. By the way, if you do have loved ones and they've been like too embarrassed to come, this is being recorded on audio and visual, and it'll be up online. So Psalm 95, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. You know who the rock is. Paul says the rock is Christ. The ancient church drank from the rock, Jesus Christ. Um, the rock in Exodus was Jesus feeding his people. And this psalm is about Exodus. And the psalm is about the Lord God preaching at his people and they will not listen. Okay? Now, look at verse 7 of Psalm 95. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. We are his people, the flock and his get. We are. Now, today, if you would hear his voice... And then Park End, we're not to do something when the living God speaks to us. And what aren't we to do? Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. You remember that story where they were grumbling and choosing cucumbers over Christ? Wish we were back in Egypt the Lord God is like, I'm here, I'll feed you. And they're like, nah, we want the comforts of Egypt. Do you remember that story? They tried me, though they had seen what I had did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation, and I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So, ready, verse 11, I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Enter my rest. Hebrews 3 verse 7 and Hebrews 4 takes that psalm and says the same thing. If the Lord God speaks, don't harden your heart or you will not enter his rest. What is God's rest? Well, um, in short, it's basically his comfort, security, peace and joy. The arms of Jesus, which every human is designed for. You won't get... The Lord God has sworn his church, if it tries to get satisfaction anywhere other than him, the church will not find it. He's gone on oath. He will not let that happen. So biologically and spiritually, the Lord God has geared you not to be happy with this stuff or your loved ones. And that's why you should turn the TV off when it gets raunchy. And now we're at the last part the cure, the bit that we all want to hear about, the cure. 
is their one from Jesus and the church. Yes. All right, I've got more. Okay. Um, here's some quick fire yeses, but then we're going to land on a massive cure. So the issue is, right, in its basic form, addicts are missing out on a spirit-filled, Jesus-centered, godly life. That's what they're missing out on. That's the gospel. Why did Jesus die? Forgive us our sins. Bring us to God. Um, why? To live the life of God. Spirit-filled life. Live like Jesus on planet Earth and get to know them more. Get to know the Trinity. So quality of life and soul are on the line here. And the first thing is, imagine if we do nothing about this. Say that we are addicts tonight, or our loved ones are. First thing I want you to do, quick fix, imagine what you'll be like in five years if you do nothing about this. Imagine the trajectory. Think of the own personal hell that you'll be living without the living God if this idol continues. Now, I want us all, now this is harder or easier for some of us than others, to picture us all at 80 years old and work backwards. So that's my goal. I want to be, or work forwards or something. For some of you, picture you as a 95-year-old and work backwards. For some of you, a 98-year-old and work backwards. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, we want to be, because it's promised by God this is the best life, Haters of sin, spirit-filled, Jesus-loving human beings. That's what we want to be. We do not want to be that seedy, old, creepy man or woman who, like, stares at women or men in a pervy way at any opportunity they get and just dwell on things smutty all day long. Have you met that guy? He's horrible, isn't he? How did that guy or woman end up like that? I'll tell you. They never put the brakes on somewhere in their life. They just didn't. They delayed hearing his voice. What's really worrying is those old people would have been grown up hearing from the local churches the sound of the gospel. That generation did, and they've hardened it. And now look at them. And if you are that seedy old creep today, or a young creep, there's still hope Jesus and the church can fix us and heal us even tonight. Welcome to church life. So that's the first thing you've got to do. Just picture what you want to be when you're older and work backwards and make some steps. The second thing is, this is where it gets interesting, I've done us a favor. Now spread this around. I want us all, or if this is a problem for you, to do something, and it's this. I want you all to give me your email addresses at the end of this or tell your loved ones to or tell them to watch the video and then do it. Hopefully within the confines of Park End so I don't have everybody on planet Earth emailing me but not that they watch this stuff. Anyway, back on track. Give me your email addresses because what I've done is I have bought us a family church pack and what it is is this online accountability program that if you give me your email addresses, I put your email address in this program and they get in touch with you and they say, click this link, install this program on your computer and on your phone. And then what it does is, it monitors everything you look at. And what happens then is, 
if you fall to this sin, I get an email. (laughs) (laughs) All right, wait, no, yeah, I thought of that. Or if you're a woman, Rita will get an email. And it's a private thing that only I will see. Or Rita, if you wouldn't want a man helping you with this. And then what happens is, you get a phone call from me, and I say, all right, I've seen you fallen again. Let's meet about it, pray about it, read through the scriptures and see how we can get back on track. And what we'll do is, together, privately, no one will know, we will pray that the spiritual power which we'll get for forgiveness, we'll pray that we have that same degree of power to help us resist falling to this temptation again. That's what will happen. So at the end of this, if you want to give me your email addresses, even if you don't struggle with it, maybe it might be worth it because one day you might, let me know. The third thing I want you to do is, and I'm certainly doing this, redo your house. What I mean by that is, there is no way my children are having a TV in their bedrooms growing up. There's just no way. Reading how damaging this is and how prevalent pornography now is on TV, the TV's coming out of my boy's room. It's not even in there, but if yours is, I would get them out. Now, I'm not a heavy shepherd here, and I'm not dictating everything you should do, but that's a dangerous thing. And our family computer is in the living room where everyone can see. I'm going to monitor them every step of the way. Why? because I love them and I see that it's destructive. I'm not being a spoil sport here. Now then, the third and final thing, and we're landing here for the rest of this session. Go back to Psalm 119. Now, here's where I give some credit to Dr. Paul Blackham. So I had written the last bit of this myself. But I heard Dr. Blackham speak last week in St. Mark's, and what he said was infinitely better than what I am going to say. So I scrapped what I said for the cure. He wasn't even talking about addiction. He was talking about something I'm going to tell you about now. And basically, I'm just going to repeat to you what he said, because it was far better than what I was going to say. And I'm thankful to God that he led me to that conference last week in St. Mark's. So, What I'm going to do, Park End, is now I'm going to lay down a very simple but neglected cure for addiction. And some of you will think, no, that's too simple. And I've sort of given it a go before and it didn't work. Or hardly anyone does that. Or you're going to think, well, isn't there a more spiritual reason or cure? Like a floaty thing in the sky. Like, can't we get zapped from God and it'll all be wonderful? Wait. Here it goes. The issue is this. In Psalm 95, the Lord says, Today I've spoken. Have I captured your heart today? That's the issue. Each day, a human being wakes up and they're confronted with this decision or meeting with God. Has Jesus captured our hearts today? Has he? Don Carson, who's a preacher in America, says... You can worship your way into pornography and you can worship your way out of pornography because it's a heart thing. And where hearts are involved, the living God's involved. And there is an answer. 
Let me just give you a trivial reason to just prove it is a matter of worship and affection. If you were told, and this will never be the case, a loved one in your family will die instantly if you watch pornography again. None of you would watch pornography again. You just wouldn't, would you? Because your affection for your family member would displace the affection you have for pornography. Do you understand that? In order to get rid of an affection, you have to replace it with a higher one. That's how we're geared. So that was on that sort of level. But we need a more realistic cure than one of your family members is going to die if you watch porn again. So that's not going to happen. But it is a heart thing. And let me throw another curveball in. How is it that Jesus didn't become a porn addict? Because there was pornography in Jesus' day. You should see some of the Greek stuff which was bouncing around the Greco-Roman world. It would make us blush. And there's tons of children involved as well in those pictures. It was everywhere. But what you find in the Gospels is Jesus did not end up an overly sexualized creep. You find that, don't you? It didn't happen. But what you do find is Jesus was fully human, so he was a full-blooded, male-hormoned human being. Now, don't shortchange him. He was fully human. And when we ask the question, well, how did Jesus avoid lusting or porn addiction? Nowhere in the Bible does it say, well, it was easy for him. He's God. He just got zapped by the Spirit all day long. So it's really different for him than us. You don't find that anywhere. How can those pathways to addiction fade away? How can we replace those pathways to become stronger towards something better? All right, what you find with Jesus is this. He relied on the Holy Spirit of God to help him do something. And what you find in the life of Jesus is the cure of cures. Are you ready? He fed, he lived, he drank in, he breathed the word of God. And the Spirit helped him do that. And he had courage to obey it. That's Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. Now what I'm going to do for the rest of this last bit is help us figure that out. Look at Psalm 119. Now look at the power of the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 9. Look, listen to this one. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? You should be thinking of Jesus there, who was the ultimate man. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Park End. I call us to a revolution. <laughs> and the revolution is this. New affection for Jesus who will lead us to his Father. New affection by asking the Spirit to make us saturated with the Word of God. Now, don't switch off. Because now I'm going to help you read the Bible so your affections grow. And it's not just some textbook. I want us to know this so, and think about this, so our children and us know the characters in the Bible even better than we know characters on Coronation Street or um, any Netflix plot line where our kids will just rattle off 
episode 41, this happened at minute 37 and all that stuff. Do you know it's possible, and this used to be the case in church, if people knew the Bible like that. Psalm 119, look at the power. Everything outside of the word of God is smoke. And before I read the best 10 or so verses ever, I'm just going to remind you that the word of God, first and foremost, is Jesus Christ. That's John chapter 1, that's basics, that's Genesis 1, that's all over the place. First and foremost, it's Jesus Christ. Then it's also this book, which is about Jesus Christ on every single page. It's about how Jesus leads people to his Father by the power of his Spirit on every single page. It's all about Jesus. So, as we jump into the Word from this day forth, the best question you can ask yourself when you open the Word of God anytime is this. What is the Father teaching me about Jesus here? What's he telling me about him and what he's done for me? And then, how can I be more like him? What is this teaching me about Jesus? And I tell you why. Because, listen to these three verses. As Jesus spoke in front of Bible teachers, but they were just dead, empty people. He said this, listen to this. This is Luke 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so Jesus flicked back to the start. He lined up at the Bible teachers of his day, went back to the start to Moses and the prophets, and he explained to him all things which were concerning himself. So Moses and the prophets, speaking about Jesus. Then in John 5, he absolutely hammers the Pharisees and says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Do you know how many chapel goers I know that just read the Bible like they read in the Financial Times, just for some statistics? Whereas Jesus is saying, no, no, you've got to come to me in this stuff. I'm the bread of life. I'll feed you. Me. They're like, no, oh, we don't want you. We'll just read the Bible. Nope, doesn't work. John 5, if you believed Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote about me. So with that in mind, let's look at this power of the word. This is life-changing stuff. Go to Psalm 119, 89 to 96. Learn it, and I'll test you next week. Bible study. Your word, O Lord, is eternal it stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Are you thinking about Jesus there? It's all about him, isn't it? I will never forget your precepts for by them you have preserved my life. Save me for I'm yours I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Don't go to the Bible just about life and death stuff. Go to the Bible about how to spend your money, how to dress, who to date, what car to drive, uh, what church to go to, who should be your friends, and what stuff you should look at at the internet. Christianity is so spiritual, yet so grounded. God has given us ways to get over addictions in this text. 
We don't sit back for a zap. We get into his word and we pray to follow it. Later on, go home and read Leviticus 18. It's a really raunchy chapter. Do you know why that stuff's in there? Because God wants us to know he knows it all and he can handle it. Raunchy stuff. Read Leviticus 18. God's like, I knew about internet issues 2,000 years ago before it was even created. Just read Leviticus 18. I'm not shocked by this stuff and I've given you a way out. In Deuteronomy 17, the king is told this, the king of Israel. The only way you're going to cope, by the way, it says this in verse 18. When he takes the throne, he is to write for himself a copy of the law. Take one from the Levitical priests. The Lord God's like, if you want a king to run fairly and not be given over to smut and horrible things and just become corrupt, he needs the Bible. He needs it. It's life-changing. And I really agreed last week with the speaker when he said this. I find this. If I don't read the Bible very quickly, I don't know if you find this, the way I think about things change. Have you found that? The things that I love begin to change. Evil things start to become attractive again again when my Bible gets a bit dusty. Have you found that? I find that unacceptable things seem acceptable again and just clutter porn comes back in when the affection for the word drops in comes the other stuff okay now I'm really going to help you Owen I'm so busy I can't possibly read the bible I just can't yes you can have a look at Psalm 119 Verses 100, verse 164. Now this, if nothing else from today, you take home, take home this. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous laws. Seven times a day. Um, Jesus was the exemplar Jew. And I think we can safely say, and it was argued in this conference last week, that he followed that pattern because he's the exemplar Jew. Now, in the Bible, in Psalm 55, 17, you find there are classic times of prayer for the Old Testament church believer. It says this, evening and morning, at noon, I will pray, I will cry aloud, the Lord God hears my voice. That's the pattern of prayer. And if you look at Daniel in chapter 6, verse 10, Daniel follows that pattern. So you, you could bet your bottom dollar that Jesus did too. All right? Okay, so if that's the time for praying, now stay with me on this. The specific hours of prayer in the Bible then are the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, giving us what? You know it. 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m. Prayer time in the life of the ancient church, standard I've been a few hours without crying out to the living God. What am I thinking? Let's get back in it. I need you for my lunchtime break. Speak to me. That is what happened in the ancient church. But therefore, this was argued in the conference, and I believe it. If those were the times of prayer, what were the times of studying the law that all these people? Well, you left them with perhaps 6 a.m., 6 p.m., 9 p.m., and midnight would be the time for scripture reading. 
Now, for Jesus, if each of those periods, now listen to this, had just been 10 to 15 minutes of Bible study, that means at the end of every day, Jesus will have spent between one and two hours reading the Scriptures. Seven times a day, I'm either praying or reading, just in snippets. But if you do that at those times for reading, end of the day, between one and two hours you've spent in the Bible. Did you know this? Reading the Bible takes about 60 hours at an average reading speed. Did you know that? That means that you, Park End, can read the whole Bible every year if you read it for just one hour a week. Which, by the way, is just about 10 minutes a day. Or you could read it twice a year if you spend 20 minutes a day reading the Bible. Or you could read the Bible once every four months if you just give 30 minutes a day to reading the Bible. So, if you spent an hour a day reading the Bible, you'd get through the Bible at least six times a year. Now, here's a question. What do you do for 30 minutes or an hour or for two hours every day? What do you do? Paul Blackham in this conference said he meets pastors who want a pat on the back because they read it once a year. But actually, that's just 10 minutes a day. And these guys are the people who are supposed to be reading it more than anyone. And they've read Harry Potter six times in a year. All, isn't it? Each Harry Potter six times a year, six sixes. But they read the Bible once and they're like, Paul, look what I've done. Now, Paul did the maths on this, so I've just printed it off. Um, but I've done some comparisons. Now, five books of the Bible, five of them will take five minutes or less to read. Now, here's my comparisons to bring it home how real this can be. That is as long as it takes to boil an egg and let it cool for two minutes. You could read, in that time, Philemon, Obadiah, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude, while your egg boils. And the reason I'm doing that is because we sometimes think we need to lock ourselves away for seven hours in one go to have a proper experience of God. It's like, no, that could really help with your temptations during the day. Whilst your egg is boiling, let it cool and read 2 John or something. Um, 15 minutes, 22 books of the Bible can be read in 15 minutes. Do you know what I googled this week in preparation? I don't cut corners, you see, Park End. What takes 15 minutes for a human to do? Right? You ready? One answer was this. Cleaning out an average size purse and sorting through the receipts. 15 minutes. You could do that. You could do that. Or you could read Lamentations, Ruth, Joel, Song of Songs, Nahum, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Malachi, Habakkuk, Haggai, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Colossians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, James, and John. And the list goes on. 30 minutes. That's half an hour of call the midwife. Let your wife get on with it, men. You can slip away. You can read Esther, Ecclesiastes, Hosea, Amos, Zechariah, Galatians, and Ephesians. One hour to spare. You could drive to Bath. That takes about an hour from here. Or you could read Nehemiah or Romans or 1 Corinthians. And what I've done is I printed off how long each book takes to read. So you could put that on your fridge. Oh, I've got four hours spare this Saturday afternoon. Psalms, here I come. Jeremiah, here I come. 
Why did I bother with that? And we're coming to an end, don't worry. Because we do need to replace filth and addictive habits with greater affections. The word of God, so that we can pour our newfangled energy, which we've pulled off porn, into the life of church. Where we love each other and pray with each other and visit each other because God's spirit gets poured out in church. And isn't this true? Coming back to those timings, little snippets of the word of God with prayer. Isn't this true? Six, eight, seven times a day, okay, 6 a.m. when you wake. Don't some of you find that you're most vulnerable at six o'clock? And those first things, Paul argued last week, and he's so true, those first things that go into your brain will shape how you think for the day. For some people, it's pornography. Even when you're half awake, just get something in. I would. That's how Jesus didn't fall to sin and temptation. He loved the word. What you start your day with, what your mind is filled with, is massive for that day. Why don't you just tune your heart in and your mind to the word of God? See what your father wants you to do for that day. Romans 12. Don't be like the world. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Well, what's going in your mind? Porn? Well, how's that going to help? 9 a.m. Do you know what most people do at 9 a.m.? Second dollop of um, the word of God. They're starting work. And you're surrounded by people who need you to be like Jesus. What are you going to do? Quick flick. Right. Psalm 19 or something. I need you in this day of work. 12 p.m. And the work thing is where we get dragged into smuts, isn't it? Smutty conversations, smutty jokes. 12 p.m. lunchtime. Thank you, Lord, for my daily bread. Hey, I remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 or seven in the other one, isn't it? And what's his message? I'm the bread. This bread, this lunch that your wife has made you is just a picture of me feeding you. And guess what? Even if you've forgotten your sandwiches, I'm still the bread of life. So even if you starve to death, don't worry, I've still got you. I'm the bread of life. Fill your mind with that as you eat your sandwiches. You could say, Lord, I could die today, and it's all right, you've got me. Your work colleagues will notice that. 2 p.m., 3 p.m., afternoon coffee. Or for my children, and I told them this, that's the schoolyard time. And do you know what kids are like when they haven't got the word of God in their brain? They get snatchy, disobedient to parents and teachers. They push each other over. They need the word of God, like a little Bible verse that their parents are giving them for that day. Think about how Jesus wants you to be. Isn't it? How have we disconnected the word from everyday life? It's tragic. Hey, don't bully. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. And last one, this one spoke to me at my conference, at the conference last week. 6 p.m. when you get home and you're tired and inside your house awaits your spouse or family members or children and you're tired and they want you to roll up your sleeves and get involved with them. You've got a choice really, haven't you? Take five in the car, pray and read a scripture, say, Lord, renew my mind as I'm going to face, because I'm so weak right now. Or just barge in and vent on them all about your day and how angry you are, and where's my tea? And you just snap at your children, and you make your family unclean for that day. You know what it's like. Seven times a day, the Lord was thinking about the word. 
9 p.m. Sleep time for some of us. A bit later for some. Read Psalm 3, 4, and 5 about how precious sleep is and how the Lord values sleep. Did you know Jesus has built in you death and you practice dying every single night? And you practice dying and being raised again every single morning. And the Lord God's like, look, this is going to happen for real one day. So every single night, you just practice it. Just practice it, giving yourself to me as you fall asleep. And I'll have you in my arms. And you'll rise again the next day. And we'll just do that until one day I do call you home. That's sleep. That's Psalm 3, 4, and 5. Wouldn't it be lovely if, as we lay our heads down, we had a little read of the word instead of pornography? Do you see how that might even affect your sleep and the way you wake up the next day? And the last one then, 12 p.m. for some of us when we wake up, or 2 a.m., temptations come at night. Do you find that? Anxiety. The amount of times I've nearly resigned from the ministry at 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm just overwhelmed with fear and anxiety and guilt and aware of my sins and frustrations. What can I do? I could open the laptop, escape in a world of porn, or I could have a little read and pray and give my anxieties to God. And well done, Park End. We're at the end. If we do that, you'll find, as with Jesus and all the ancient uh, faithful men and women of God, you begin to conquer your biology. And you stop seeing people sexually all the time, and you start seeing them as family. And the Bible invites Christians to treat men like brothers, women like sisters, which is a loving, healthy framework of church life. Here's 1 Timothy 5. Don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Now, the battle's on for an 11-year-old to do that if he's watching Paul. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. That's Galatians 6. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. And so we depart. Let's get ordered. Let's plan to be old people who are like Jesus and love Jesus and work backwards, or even older if some of us are there already. Let's make practical steps to deal with addiction. Let's get on the park end email list if we want to, or encourage our loved ones to. Let's spend more time with church family instead of being locked away. Let's feed on the word of God when we can and talk about it to each other in church and in everything. Ask for the living God to meet us so we don't harden our hearts each and every day. Thank you so much for coming to this hot topic, which was one hour and four minutes. That was a big one. What I'm going to do is I'm going to close in prayer, whether you're a Christian or not. I'll ask for that Lord God to bless us all now as we depart. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, again, we've seen how true and lovely 
and honest and pure Jesus Christ was. And when he told us not to do things, it's not because he's a spoil sport. It's because he loves people and wants them to turn from death and decay into life. Father God in heaven, bring us all into your family, into your church life. We repent of sin as a group now. We all have failings. Help us each day, Lord, to feed on you and to trust you that the effort of the fight of faith is a good one and worth running. Be with each and every person in this church, Lord, with their temptations and failings. Bless us as a group. Help us to encourage each other to press on. Have mercy, patience, and kindness to our loved ones who are trapped in this horrible addiction and bring them into the life that you want them to live. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.